Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 10 Shanghai. It's the color of the season, said Chris Duckworth. We were sitting at a table in the bar of Shanghai 1930. The topic under discussion was the electric blue of his Qingsam dress. If it's the color of the season, how come I haven't seen it anywhere? Chris gulped at his Singapore sling and shook his head in frustration. We were performing that night as the Cassandra Q Quartet, Cassandra being Chris's drag queen name and the Q standing for you-know-what, and Chris had gone all out for the event. His dress was a tight, slinky number with a dragon embroidered down the front and slits up the side longer than Wilt Chamberlain's inseam. He'd paired it with dangling lapis lattice earrings and a matching bracelet and anklet of lapis beads. He wore a black wig cut in a short bob and had done his face up like a porcelain doll's, a pale white foundation, shockingly red lipstick, and a beauty mark painted high on his left cheek. In spite of my chiding him about the dress, I had to admit he looked good. Too good, in fact. It would be all too easy to mistake him for a beautiful female twerk singer who'd stepped off the screen from a 1930s movie. He returned the drink to the table and plucked out the little umbrella to twirl around in his fingers. It might be you haven't seen the color because you didn't go to the opening night of the opera, attend any theater, or look at the covers of any fashion magazines. I smirked at him. Wait, I said. I take that back. I did see it on a magazine cover. See? I told you. Which one? National Geographic. On some monkey's butt. He threw the little umbrella at me. It bounced off my chest to the floor. I should have seen that one coming, he said. Now explain to me why I saw you on the nightly news for the second day running. The sound on the TV in my dressing room was down, so I couldn't hear what they were saying. It was times like this that I missed cigarettes the most. I craved the opportunity to go through the little dissembling motions of pulling the pack out and shaking a cigarette loose. I'll tell you, I said after an awkward pause, but you're not going to like it. I explained to Chris how I'd gone to visit Columbia Voting Technologies, how I'd talked to the CEO, and how I ended up shooting Guyberger. By the time I finished, Chris didn't need the foundation to make his face look pale. My God, August, when did all this happen? A little after I dropped you off. Why? He stirred his drink, avoiding my eyes. I was supposed to have a job interview with them this afternoon, but they phoned me up to reschedule. Now I know why. A job interview? Don't tell me that you just happened to pick CVT as the ideal place to end your unemployment eligibility. 
Chris brought a hand up to his chest in a girlish gesture and coughed. I looked up CBT right after you called me to talk to the professor. I saw they had an opening for a temporary QA engineer on their website, so I decided to apply. I do have to make at least a token effort to find a job to keep my unemployment benefits, and if I actually landed it, I thought I could meddle in one of my investigations again. No, help you figure out how the election was compromised. If an engineer at CVT was responsible, what better way to find out than to go undercover? You nearly got killed the last time you went undercover, as you put it. If you'd been on site today when Geiberger showed up, you might have been hurt too. This isn't a game, Chris. I appreciate your help, but you've got to clear these things with me first. You hear me? I was almost shouting by the end. He stirred his drink listlessly and said, I hear you, in a near whisper. All right, then. I took a big gulp from the bourbon and soda in front of me and rattled the rocks around in the glass as I stared at a poster on the wall by the entrance. It was a painting of four girls playing mahjong in a whorehouse. After a while, I brought my eyes back to Chris. So, I said in a tone I fought to keep solemn, Do you think you actually have a chance of getting this job? And the election is only five days away. Would they bring you on board quick enough for it to do us any good? Chris grinned so wide I thought he was going to crack his makeup. It's a temporary position. They're hiring a bunch of people to bang on a new release, and they want them to start right away. I'm more than qualified. I've tempted on lots of QA gigs. And with today's uh, incident, they're not likely to have many applicants. I wasn't really very worried about the physical risks of Chris taking the job. With Geiberger dead, the likelihood of further violence was low, and the fact of the matter was, I needed the help. Okay, sport, let's give it a whirl. And if you do land the job, promise me you'll keep me posted on anything you find, and be careful. Nothing illegal. No plumber squad stuff. Just what you learn from working there and talking to people. Chris nodded like one of those bobbing head dolls. He quickly steered the conversation away from CVT by asking me what I'd learned in the afternoon. I filled him in on the doings at New College, including my encounter with the skirt-wearing campaign worker and the kick in the shin I received at the steel-tipped toe of his sister. He laughed and said, That's what you get for pigeonholing people into our culture's rigid two-gender system. Exactly the lesson I drew from the encounter. He glanced down at his jeweled Longine watch. So where is this Chinatown cutie of yours? It's showtime. Her mother said she was coming. She didn't say when. Her mother? Did she also say you had to have her home by 10? Bite me. Careful what you wish for. I'm off to powder my nose. That will give you boys plenty of time to get set for my grand entrance. I watched as Chris rose from the red velvet chair and sashayed through the checkerboard maze of tables to a door that opened in the frosted glass wall behind the bar. Blue lights shone from behind the wall, suffusing the many bottles of liquor on the chromium shelves with a bewitching glow. The rest of the room was lit up in a ruby red by a series of wall fixtures that looked like overlarge tulip blossoms bursting to open. The bandstand was across from the bar, near the entrance to the dining area. The other members of the Cassandra Q Quartet, Tristan Sinclair on piano and Saul Hodges on drums, 
were loitering by the Baldwin Baby Grand as Hodges pecked out a melody with one hand while clutching a highball glass in the other. Sinclair smiled as I came up and tipped his trademark pork pie hat in a smaltzy gesture. The bass man cometh. Hey, August, what do you call someone who hangs around with musicians? I glanced over at Hodges, who had stopped pecking at the piano and was looking up at me with an expectant grin. A groupie, I said. Sinclair laughed. Sure, he said. A groupie. A drummer was the answer he'd been looking for. Sinclair had an endless store of drummer and percussionist jokes, often impugning their musicianship and or their intelligence, and he never tired of telling them when he played with Hodges. The truth was, Hodges was the best musician of the lot of us, leader of a serious band called Distant Opposition, and a composer and arranger in much demand for movie and commercial work. Both he and Sinclair were playing the gig that night as a favor to me and Chris. They certainly didn't need the work. Hodges gunned the rest of his drink and set the glass down on the piano near the music stand, where he knew it would annoy Sinclair. He pinched the triangular flavor saver beard beneath his lower lip and nodded toward the back of the room. Better play the intro before Cassandra there pops a falsy, giving us the high sign. Sinclair took his place on the piano bench, and Hodges settled in behind the drum kit. I carefully removed my Italian Alberto Begliamini double bass from its resting place, wiped off the strings with a cloth, and half set, half leaned on a high stool sandwiched between Hodges' kick drum and Chris's microphone. Hodges counted off the tempo, and we began an extended contemplation of the intro of the Nick Drake song, Day is Done. Drake's version could best be categorized as folk, but Chris so liked the haunting, downbeat lyrics of the troubled British singer-songwriter that Hodges had done a slow-swing arrangement of the tune with dissonant, Mangus-like altered harmonies. Chris threaded his way through the bar tables to the bandstand with a pouty expression on his face, turning his head in time to the music so that one dangling airing and then the other lay flat against his neck. He didn't exactly look Chinese, but somehow still managed to exude an air of mystery and exotic lands. He stepped daintily onto the riser, moved to the side of the piano, and in a show-opening ritual he had developed with Sinclair, adjusted the lid prop to bring the top open to its widest position, enlarging and deepening the baby grand sound. Sinclair nodded his thanks, and Chris slid over to the microphone just as we came to the head. He sang the opening lines, when the day is done, down to earth then sinks the sun, in a sweetly plaintive contralto that ensnared the audience, pulling them away from their drinks, their conversations, and their people watching. He held them entranced through the bittersweet close and received an enthusiastic round of applause that began after a moment of near silence, during which the audience seemed to snap out of it and collect themselves. Chris bowed modestly and immediately called for the Gershwin tune. Love walked in. Hodge's arrangement was more up-tempo than the original and left plenty of room for improvs. Sinclair did eight bars of intro by himself, and then Hodges led us in for a chorus of the melody. Chris came in to sing the first two stanzas of the lyrics, pausing dramatically with his hand to his ear after he sang, My heart seemed to know that love said hello. 
I shouted hello back, and he finished the stanza to laughter and scattered applause. Sinclair took a chorus with long, melodic runs and some nice left-hand vamping, but instead of passing it off to Hodges or me as expected, he plowed right on for another. Hodges made sure to wrest control from him on the next chorus and did a very sophisticated and restrained, for a drummer at least, solo, showcasing soft rolls and cymbal accents. I was next. I had originally intended to take it easy, simply walking the bass through the changes, but I abandoned the notion when I caught sight of a pair of elegantly trousered legs descending the curved staircase that led down from the restaurant entrance on Stewart Street. It was Lisa Lee, resplendent in a black pantsuit that was made up to look like a men's tuxedo, with a cutaway jacket and a fancy waistcoat whose color could only be described as electric blue. To say I had butterflies was an understatement. They were more like mastiff bats. Lisa looked straight at me as I began the solo, and my fingers suddenly felt damp and sweaty on the fingerboard. Moisture is the bane of all bass players because it increases resistance on the strings, making it harder to reach notes predictably. In spite of my nervousness, I smiled and nodded at her, imagining I was one of my heroes, George de Vivier playing the well-regarded 1962 Carol Sloan recording of the same tune. I tried for nice phrasing, not an all-out chops fest. I worked in some syncopation to add interest, going off the beat at times and relying on Hodges and Sinclair to keep time without stepping on my solo. I threw in some call and response to carry me through the middle measures and added double stops, playing notes on two strings simultaneously, to fill out the sound. It came out much better than I had any right to expect. Applause after a bass solo is rare as hen's dentures, but I got some. Chris made a point of stepping aside with arm extended to acknowledge the effort, but more importantly, Lisa stood by the foot of the stairs throughout, nodding in time to the music, smiling up at me. As pleasant as that was, I was more than a little relieved when Sinclair came back in with the melody and the pressure was off. Chris repeated the middle stanza of the lyrics, giving me the chance to shout hello once more, and then finish the tune to a nice round of applause. As Lisa moved to the table in the second row near the center, he leaned back to whisper, Is that your little moon cake? She's not my little anything yet, I said, and keep your inappropriate cultural references to yourself. A thousand pardons, he said with a leering smile that I knew from long experience meant trouble. He turned back to the microphone. Thank you very much. I'm Cassandra, and you're listening to the Cassandra Q Quartet. And now, as a special request of our bass player, August Reardon, we're going to play a little number for a friend of his who just arrived. From Frank Lossier, composer of Guys and Dolls, here is On a Slow Boat to China. Hodges, who'd been listening to our whispered conversation, laughed out loud. I glared back and forth between them. You boys are as cute as a couple of discarded hypodermic needles, I said, but it was wasted breath. Hodges hurried into a count-off and shouted, No intro. Chris belted out the opening line. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China, dispensing with the usual four bars of piano. I felt the color rise in my cheeks and looked over to gauge Lisa's reaction, but her expression was hard to read under the glare of the spotlights. She didn't look angry but she didn't look exactly joyous either. Chris finished the lyrics and scattered another chorus. 
Sinclair came in for a solo, and then it was my turn. I mixed it up a little by grabbing the bow out of its holster and interweaving bowed and plucked lines. Then Chris came back into trade fours. He scattered four bars. The piano came in for four, followed by Chris again, and so on until all of us had a turn. After the final exchange with Hodges, Chris restated the lyrics, investing them with a sultry, warm tone that was particularly insinuating given the subtext. But if Lisa was angry that, by implication, I wanted to get her, quote, all to myself alone, her reaction was not what I expected. As the rest of the audience gave us a very enthusiastic round of applause, she sat at her table dabbing at her eyes with a napkin. The remainder of the set seemed to go by quickly. In keeping with the theme of long-distance travel, we followed up with Bart Howard's Fly Me to the Moon and finished with an unusual jazz arrangement of Brian Wilson's In My Room. Lisa applauded politely and even smiled at me at one point, but Slow Boat had definitely steered her off course. Chris announced a break, and I attempted to stretch out the chores of wiping down the base and putting it away as long as possible to delay my encounter with Lisa but Chris was oblivious. He grabbed the instrument from my hands, leaned it into the corner, and took me by the arm. Come on, big boy, he commanded. Introduce me. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, Spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.